I'm going to be reading this morning from Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, Not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it out upon his head as he reclined at table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, What is the point of this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. And when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver up to you, to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And I'll pray. God, we um, again just come to you and just thank you for your word, for what you've revealed, but especially, God, for yourself and your loving heart for us, that you only want our good and that your ways are true and just and right. And I pray, God, again, as we come before you, that we would hear your voice and yield, Lord, in faith and obedience to you out of love, knowing, God, that you have first loved us and that we would just allow you, God, to minister to us as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Connor, for um, subbing in for me last week. Patsy and I had to be in Colorado. John was there, too, John Forrest, for some meetings with torchbearers that take place each year. And um, it was really, really cold, so it's really, really good to be home. Um, we are now coming into the last section here of Matthew. We started back in January. And now we're at um, just this last couple days of Christ's earthly life. Matthew 26 would have been the Wednesday before his crucifixion. Now Matthew has, um, who never, not actually Matthew, whoever came after Matthew and made these chapter divisions was not thinking of the preacher when he did this um, because this is a 75 verse chapter. So there's no way you're saying thank you very much to do it in one Sunday. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to be breaking this up over the next um, two or three times that I preach. But I will also just remind you that this coming week, we have the privilege of having Satish John here with us from India. Um, dear brother and friend, um, I'm just so thankful for him. 
Um, he is just, I, I couldn't even tell you all the um, um, details of his life because it would cause trouble for him. But he is just truly an exceptional and remarkable um, man in today's world. And then the following week after Thanksgiving, Peter Reed, who is the general director for Torchbearers, will be here preaching as well. So we're going to be doubly blessed to have um, these two brothers here, um, just some of the two of the finest men I know, um, preaching here. So it's a, I'm looking forward to that very much. When we look at the four gospel accounts of the life of Christ, um, it's rich and full. Um, and when we come to the last week of Christ's life, all the more so. Matthew, for reasons he doesn't tell us, does not give us all the detail that, say, John gave. Matthew omits the last discourse of Christ, which we call the upper room discourse, and what we also call the high priestly prayer. So all the events of John 14, 15, 16, and 17 are not in Matthew. So Matthew just says, not my purpose. We don't know why, but in God's um, wisdom, this is how he directed Matthew to write. So Matthew, in these two chapters, 26 and 27, is going to talk about five things. The preparation for Christ's death, his arrest, the various trials that took place, the crucifixion, and the burial. Chapter 28 will be the resurrection of Christ. So there's a lot going on in these two chapters. There are no more important events. Nothing is more significant in the history of this world or this universe than what is being recorded in these few chapters. Where God, who became flesh, is now at the threshold of giving his life for us. And in doing so, paying for the sin of the world and and providing everything necessary to reconcile man to himself. Raising from the dead so that the life that he gave for us might be given to us. Nothing is more significant in all of history than what is being recorded in these chapters. That being the case, it is amazing that Matthew is writing without emotion, without embellishment, with complete restraint, giving only the facts. Nothing is overstated. There is no flair. There is no dramatization. It's just the facts. Like they used to say on Dragnet many, many years ago. Jesus is not being presented in these chapters as a victim. He is being presented as being in absolute control. In another place in the Gospels, Jesus is recorded as saying, No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord or of my own free will. So he came for this very purpose. It's hard for me to think of Christmas without thinking of his death. Because he came into this world to give himself for this world. And now everything is coming together in these chapters. There is some debate when you look at John 17 of what Jesus was talking about when he said, Father, I have glorified you. Past tense. Now, Father, glorify me with you. 
Is he talking about his 33 years of life, including his death, when he says, I have glorified you? Or is he talking about up to the point of his death, and now in his death, that Jesus is being glorified? Is the glory of Jesus that he's speaking of in chapter 17 of John after he rises from the dead and ascends to the Father, or is the glory of Christ something that's being demonstrated on the cross? Hard to say. But it would seem that perhaps what Jesus was saying is, in the first 33 years of my life, I have lived in such a way that God has been completely glorified. And now in these last hours, I'm asking you, God, to glorify me. Because the glory of God is more than just God sitting on a throne in pure light. But it is seeing all that God is. And he is the suffering God who loves those he has suffered for. So this is a very, very um, important, powerful passage of scripture. There's no way that anybody can do it justice. I can't help but think that we will spend all of eternity plumbing the depths of what is happening at this time. We can't begin to comprehend it. So the chapter starts out and saying that it came about when Jesus had finished all these words, the words of the Olivet Discourse. He said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. So this had to be on Wednesday and the Passover would start on Friday evening. And it would be on Friday evening that Christ would, would commemorate the last Passover of his life or his earthly life. And then he says, and they are going to deliver up at that time, the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. This is not news to them. This is the fourth time now that Jesus has made mention that he is going to die. He said in, in chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 20, and now in chapter 26. Jesus said, from, the time, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day rise again. He said, when they had gathered together in, G in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And then he also said in chapter 20, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised up again. So this is not news. But it appears to still be lost on the disciples, for the most part. I don't know that they, had, they were completely clueless on what's going on. But they don't seem to fully grasp the significance of these events and what's about to happen. Even though Jesus is saying it again. So in chapter, in verse 2... In two days, the Passover is coming, I'm going to be crucified. That was not the plan of the Pharisees, but it is the plan of God. Verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders and the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they were saying, Not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. So who's in control? It was not the will of the Pharisees for Jesus to be killed during the Passover. But it was the will of God. 
And again, this is God's purposing. And all through this passage, we see Jesus is in control. It's good to know. When elections don't turn out the way that they should, it is good to know. When President Trump was in office, if one thing became clear is that there are, there is not, I would say, there is not a single um, element of our government that can be trusted. If that wasn't clear during his office, it became clear during COVID. There is not a single institution in this government that we can trust. But God is in control. Man makes his plans, but God is in control. I told my daughters-in-law, two of them, Brooklyn and Davina, that I would take five of the boys out for breakfast Friday morning. And they're going, no, that can't happen. It's going to be a disaster. Somebody's going to die. <laughs> and so, no, no, got this under control. Famous last words. So I took five boys, ages five to eight, out to Whataburger in Kerrville for pancakes with lots of maple syrup, which is pure sugar. They did okay. We managed. The place did not burn down. The health department didn't shut it down. And so then I thought, now what do I do? So I took them, thought, take them to Gibson's, where all the toys are, right? No, 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 no. So I knew that wouldn't work. Um, the police would come. So I, I took them to the city park and, um, and where there's the river and there's rocks and there's lots of ducks. I didn't know there were lots of ducks. And the boys started chasing ducks. They must have chased ducks for 10 miles. Back and forth, five boys running in five directions, just chasing the ducks. And they were chasing ducks all over that park. And I'm thinking, there goes all that maple syrup. That's a good thing. And then after the ducks looked like they were going to run up on the, on the road and get smacked, I thought, I probably should call back the kids in case the police come and, and arrest me for abusing ducks. It worked out okay, surprisingly. That is nothing. Five boys chasing ducks and trying to be in control. Poor illustration. This world looks like it is out of control. But it's not. God is in complete control. That doesn't mean things are happening as they should. It doesn't mean that everything is what God originally intended for this world. It's not. This is, he did not intend for evil. He did not intend for chaos. But God remains sovereign. There is nothing that happens in this world that God can't work it for his purposes. I don't understand all that, but I'm sure comforted by it. These evil men were planning to kill Jesus secretly. Where nobody would know, he just doesn't show up one day. And Jesus, fully God, is going, it's not going to happen that way. It's going to be as public as it can possibly be. On a crossroads where many people traveled, so many people that the words king of Israel had to be printed in different languages. Extremely public. 
verse 6. They're in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. Now, it appears that Matthew is backtracking here. This is no longer two days before his crucifixion. This would be six days before his crucifixion. So Matthew is trying to present a, a, a logical order of thought, not a logical order of events. And so this actually happened on the Saturday before the crucifixion, six days before, according to John. John's more precise on this and says six days before the Passover. That Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. We're just a woman and it's just costly perfume. We know from the other Gospels it wasn't just any woman. This was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And once again, Mary is, ha, is much more aware of who Jesus is and is the only one who's really giving him the honor and worship that he is worthy of. It's not just costly perfume, it's extremely cost, costly. It's, it's worth 300 denarii, which is a year's wages. In today's economy, this would be like a $50,000 vial of perfume. Can you imagine? If any of you ladies spend $50,000 on a vial of perfume, I don't even want to hear about it. I mean, unbelievable. And so this is extremely costly, as particularly in this time. And without any thought to, the, to, to what she is forfeiting, she gladly anoints Jesus. And it says that they were indignant. She poured it upon his head as he reclined at table. One of the other gospels says on his feet. Well, she did both. And so she anointed his head, she anointed his feet, she wiped his feet with her hair. And the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, What is the point of this waste? For the perfume might have been given, might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. We again know from one of the other Gospels that this was mainly Judas objecting. He was the one who got everybody riled up and said, Can you believe this? A year's wages, $50,000 in today's economy that's been just wasted. Wasted. We could have given this. Think about how many people could have been helped. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother this woman? She has done a good deed to me. The poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. When she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of me. They don't get it. The only person here who seems to begin to grasp what's about to happen is Mary. He says, she did this to prepare my body for burial. I have to think she knew what she was doing because of what Jesus says. She did this to prepare my body for burial. And by the way, I'm more important than all the poor people of the world. How many people today spend their life doing good deeds with no thought of Jesus? 
Really, it can come down to themselves. All the poor that they've helped, but their heart is far from God. What Jesus was about to do would benefit every person on the planet, poor and rich alike. And somehow Mary seemed to understand that. Here's a principle that just jumps out at you from this passage. To the lover of Jesus, money means little. To the lover of money, Jesus means little. Judas was a lover of money. It's as simple as that. He was the guy that had the purse strings. All the money, whenever people donated money to them, it went into Judas's hands. He kept the money box. And we're told he used to pilfer from that money box. So in Judas's mind, this was never about the poor. It was about him. He was greedy and covetous. And when he saw all that money wasted, he was thinking, I could have had some of that. The 30 pieces of silver that he's going to sell Jesus for would have been 10% of what this woman wastes. Maybe it's that 10% that he would have pilfered had she sold it and gotten the 300 denarii. The lover of Jesus, money means little. But for the lover of money, Jesus means little. That should sink in. And it says, verse 14, Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. There seems to be Matthew's making a connection here. Even though it doesn't happen exactly at that time, he's making a logical connection, not a historical event connection. It was a few days later when he went and probably on that same Wednesday, Judas went and said to the high priest, I'm willing to give him up. One of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him thirty pieces of silver. If an ox gored a man's slave and the slave was killed you had to pay the man 30 pieces of silver. So Judas doesn't see Jesus as more, any more valuable than a dead slave. Really sad. Judas had been with Jesus from the very beginning. Sometimes we wonder, was Judas ever saved? Did he ever place his faith in Christ? I think the scriptures shut the door on that. He is called a devil, Jesus says, have I not chosen you all? And yet one of you is a devil. He is said to be filled with Satan in Luke 22, 3, when he got up from the Passover meal and went to betray Jesus. In John 13, when Jesus started wiping their feet, washing their feet, and Peter objected, Jesus says, you are all clean, but not one of you. He says, if you've been cleansed, you didn't, then all you need to do is to have your feet washed. You are all clean except one of you. And he was talking about Judas. And in his high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus called him a son of perdition or a son of judgment, of hell. This man was not saved. 
been with Jesus the entire three years, probably had even performed miracles. Jesus sent them out two by two to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and they did all these things, all 12 of them, including Judas, while an unsaved man. I've got a fly bothering me up here. I can't imagine the hardness of this man's heart and what has closed down his heart more than anything else it seems to be the love of money, his personal ambition. He was using Jesus for his own ambition and when that was disappointed, he had no use for Jesus. Again, how common is that? That we claim a faith, we claim a Christianity and many times it's really for what we can get out of it. And when we're disappointed, we walk away. Verse 17, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? For reasons we aren't told, Jesus doesn't make this actually known. I think he knew exactly where they were to prepare it, but he gave this ambiguous Response, verse 18. Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The certain man, he says, you'll find in one of the other gospels, a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow the man. He will take you to his house. Say to the master in the house, Jesus needs the upper room. Now, why all the mystery and cloak and dagger type of stuff here? It would seem, perhaps, because Jesus knew Judas is looking for an opportunity. And Jesus is in complete control. And he can give such imprecise instructions and have it come out exactly like he wants. But he knows Judas can't figure this out. If he had just said, hey, go to Frank's house, and Frank's going to be carrying, a, you know, and, and just, then Judas would have known that the soldiers could break down the door during the middle of the Passover, and that whole time would have been ruined. Jesus is in control. So he can give these very imprecise instructions, as it were, no names, no, no physical addresses, and it all works out perfectly because Jesus is orchestrating while Judas is conniving. Good to know. God is orchestrating the events of our lives, while evil men connive. And then, the last Passover. That's how it's written in my Bible, probably written in that, that for yours as well. Why is it called the last Passover? The Jews didn't stop observing Passover at this time. They, they observed Passover and still observe Passover today. It's the last Passover in the sense that it is this Passover where what the Passover represents, what it symbolizes, is fulfilled. Sadly, the Jews didn't seem to know that the Passover was looking forward. They thought it was looking backward. Back to the time when they painted their house doors with blood, the angel of death passed over, they were kept safe on the inside, and then they were delivered from Egypt to a new country. All that's been fulfilled. But there's more to it than that. It's not looking backward, but looking forward 
to when the Lamb of God would give himself for the sins of the world. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's looking forward. And Jesus is that Lamb. It's estimated that over 200,000 lambs were slaughtered on the Passover day in Jerusalem. I read as many as 265,000 lambs. This was an amazing time. They had priests that were just lined up so that, they could, so that as the lambs, lines of priests, I don't even know how many, and nothing I read said could even estimate, lines and lines of priests, and as these lambs were being slaughtered, and the blood was being caught, the bucket or bowls of blood were passed to the next priest, to the next priest, till they were all taken to the altar, and they were drenched on the altar to where they were, and there, was, there were um, gutters underneath the altar to channel all that blood away. Hundred, literally hundreds of thousands of lambs on this day. And it's the day that the Passover was eaten by the vast majority of people, and um, when, when Jesus would celebrate the Passover. There's a lot of, um, again, um, synchronization that has to take place between the different accounts here. I'm not going to go into all the detail. It works out. If you Two places that you could read if you want to see great harmonization of these passages is Dwight Pentecost's Life and Times of Christ. Excellent work. And also Harold Honer's book on the chronology of the life of Christ. And they show how all this works out fine. There's no contradictions. Um, it all makes perfect sense um, as you study into greater detail. Now when the evening had come, he was reclining at table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. Now this table setting was like a horseshoe. One end was open. So it allowed at that opening for people to go into the table that's in the middle and put the different elements on it as they were needed. And then they would recline on their right, I'm sorry, their left elbow so that they could eat with their right hand and their feet pointing out behind them, their head facing the inner table. We know that they, prior to this uh, of, of reclining, they were all jockeying for position. They were arguing over who was going to be greatest in his kingdom. And that's where Jesus will take up a towel and he'll wash their feet and tell them that they should be servant of all. But as they sat around the table, we know that they would serve one another. The host would start the serving. And he would serve with his right hand to the person on his left. And so the position of greatest honor at this table was not the right, but it was the left. On his right was John. That might have been the least position, because that would have been the last person to have been served as the food went around the table. And so John was in that place when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. John was in that place where he could just lean back on Jesus and say, who, Jesus? And Jesus says, the one that I'm going to extend the next part of the supper to. Now, he would have been extending every part of the supper to John, to, to the one next to him. But the next piece, Pentecost says, was actually that piece of 
lamb wrapped in bitter herbs, which signified that I am giving my life for you. This is one more opportunity you have to repent. One more opportunity you have to believe. Which tells us that even though God knew that Judas was going to betray him, there was a genuine offer of salvation on the table. And he could have legitimately actually received what Jesus was offering him. But he refused it. And he did not eat that one element. And it was that point that Satan filled his heart and Jesus said, go do what you're going to do quickly. And he got up from the table without eating what Jesus was offering to him at that point. Judas would have been sitting on his right, the place of greatest honor. And if there's anything about these events that I find so astounding and so just supernatural, it's so above us, is that for these years that Judas has been with them, and when actually from near the beginning, Jesus says, have I not chosen you all and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus knew exactly which one that was, knew exactly what he was going to do. And at this table, nobody knew it was Judas except Jesus. John says, quotes Jesus as saying that he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And it included Judas. God loves this world, even the Judases of this world. So much so that the other men who knew Judas the best had no idea because Jesus did not treat him any differently than the other men. Amazing. That's not natural to our humanity. Verse 22, and being deeply grieved, they each one said to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Who was the greatest man that ever lived? John the Baptist. Why was he the greatest man that ever lived? It would seem because no one ever had a greater opportunity and privilege to present Jesus than John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God. He's the greatest man because he gave simply the greatest witness of Jesus than any person. All the others said, he's coming, he's coming. John gets to say, he's here and that's him. So with the clarity of testimony, this is why Jesus will also say, and yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John, because those now, we, who have the Spirit of God living in us, are giving greater testimony of Jesus than even John the Baptist could give, and we are greater than John the Baptist. But what about the person who heard the testimony, walked with Jesus, saw Jesus, perform miracles by the power of Jesus, and still refuses to believe in Jesus. I think it's fair to say, worst man who ever lived. Maybe worse than Hitler. Mussolini, any other dictator and, and mass executionist that you could find. Judas heard, saw, 
the clearest witness of the Son of God that any human being has ever seen to that date. Maybe that's why Jesus says better for him to have never been born. And we can again see that the implication here is it didn't have to go this way for Judas. God knew what would happen, but Judas, Jesus is grieved over what he is facing and what the end will be for him. Verse 25, And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely it's not I, Rabbi. Did you catch the distinction? All the others were saying, Surely not I, Lord. And Judas says, Surely not I, Rabbi. An honor, a title of honor, but certainly less than Lord. All the other men were believers. Judas was the exception. And he can't bring himself to call him Lord. But one day, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. And at this point, though Matthew doesn't record it, Judas left the room. And now Jesus gets to that part of the Passover where he's going to change the meaning of it, give new meaning to it. And so in that sense, this last Passover becomes the first communion. And it's an awesome thing. In the last part that we looked at, Judas knew what he was going to do. The eleven didn't know what they were capable of. And Jesus, again, was fully aware, fully in control, while serving, loving, personally hopeful for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and obedient to the Father. So much going on here. Judas knew what he was going to do. Now he knows Jesus knows what he's going to do. And that must have been what prompted him to get up and get out of the room. Because he knows, Jesus knows. And he has to get up out of the room and do what he's been scheming to do. The eleven didn't know what they were capable of. Jesus doesn't expose Judas, but he exposes the eleven. Isn't that interesting? We would have done it just the opposite. Expose Judas... And yet, kind of just be okay with the other 11. Jesus does not expose Judas. He's in such complete control. But the other 11, he says, you guys are not nearly as good, not nearly as respectable as you think that you are. And one of the key works that God has to do in every heart, whether believer or even unbeliever, is rip away their self-respectability. We all think there are things that we would never do. This is where Oswald Chambers says, there is no criminals who is half so bad in actuality as what we are capable of in potentiality. And the only thing that safeguards us is the redemption of Jesus Christ. Paul will say in Romans 7, there is evil in me. And that's true for Paul, it's true for all of us. 
yet we have this incredible sense of self-respectability. I'm convinced that this is one of the things that we often see God do at His Hill in the course of a Bible school. It's not part of our curriculum. Rip away any sense of respectability that any person has about themselves. No. But God often does that. You grew up in a Christian home. You've been told your whole life what a wonderful person you are. That you're beautiful, you're smart, you're good looking, you're perfect. And then you start reading God's word for nine months and he says, you can do nothing about without me. You're a wretch. You're a sinner. That you are helpless. You're ungodly. And all of a sudden they go, Mom. <laughs> and they do, Mom. And they, sometimes they want to run home. And I, I have seen it more than once. And, I, and I've sat in my office and I go, what's going on? I'm just feeling like an awful person. Well, who's telling you you're awful? Nobody. Listen to what you just said. Maybe it's God trying to say something to you. Because we're all awful apart from the grace of God. This is why we needed a Savior. And so God wants to open our eyes to what He has saved us from, which is ourselves. Amen? Amen. This is what He has saved me from. Me. Me. I'm my greatest enemy. And God gave His Son to save us from ourselves. But how are we going to appreciate what he has done if he doesn't show us who we are? And that is one of the greatest works of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives is to show us what we are, what we are capable of, so that we come to him humbly with open hands and gratitude and say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for taking my sin, for forgiving me and cleansing me of all unrighteousness. Thank you, God. From this passage, we see that Judas feigned his loyalty. Surely not I, Rabbi. The eleven claimed loyalty. We will not deny you. But Jesus was the only one who was truly loyal. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? It's only Jesus. Judas acted like it. The other 11 claimed it, but only Jesus was truly loyal to his Father and his calling upon his life. I wanted to get into the next section here on the Lord's Supper and the introduction, the inauguration of the New Covenant. But the New Covenant is such a, it's, it's a huge topic and it is such a blessing. I, I just don't want, to, want to not, I don't want to rush it. And we only have four minutes left. But I'd introduce it to you this way so you can be thinking on it. When God called Abraham, he made a series of Magnificent promises to that man. He promised him, among many things, three things in particular. Promised him a seed, a son. And then we're later told that the, that, that was actually pointing ultimately to David and his son, which would sit on his throne forever. That's ultimately what God was telling Abraham. So from the promise of a seed will come 
what we call the Davidic covenant. God also promised Abraham that he would give him a land. And he told him, walk through the land. This is all your land. Abraham died without possessing anything other than a graveyard. But he died believing that one day he would actually be the possessor of that land. From that promise of a land came another covenant that we call the Palestinian covenant for the, Pal for the land of Palestine. And it's in Deuteronomy 28. So it's a promise of blessings and curses that pertain to the land. The third, and, and maybe the most significant, it's hard to say, they're all very significant, but is the new covenant. And in that, where God promised and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing, a blessing to the whole world. And from that, we have what we call the new covenant, which was also prophesied and described in, Deuteron I'm sorry, in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36. We'll look at that a little bit next week. That is what Jesus is inaugurating here. The thing that we have to keep in mind is that all four of those covenants, Abrahamic, Davidic, Palestinian, and New Covenant, have to do with Israel. Israel. So how do we come in? Because we celebrate the New Covenant every time we have communion. We come in because Israel rejected Christ. And I'll develop that more next time. We don't come into the land covenant, to the land promises. That's not for us. But we do come into the blessing that God promised Abraham. Paul will talk about this in Romans. The author of Hebrews is going to spend several chapters talking about it. Paul also talks about the new covenant in 2 Corinthians. This is a major theme of the New Testament. Sadly, we don't always appreciate what Christ did at this time with the inauguration of this covenant through the shedding of His blood. But it makes us the most blessed people who have ever lived. It's a very significant thing. There are evil people, evil forces, and an evil being, Satan, at work in this world over time. If we didn't have Jesus and know the book, we could despair. But if Jesus was in absolute control of all these evil intentions, Satan's never mentioned here, except that he filled Judas's heart, we would be prone to think these are dark, dark times. God is in control. He orchestrated the events of these days, and He is orchestrating the events of our days. We are the people of hope. We know how it ends. And we know God who will not be thwarted by the evil intentions of men. I'll close us in prayer. Thank you, God, for your word. We need you. We all live in circumstances that are our undoing. We're not able for them. We are limited, we are weak, often confused. We prone, are prone to despair and dejection. Your word says, God, during these very hours of darkness, Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, let not your hearts be troubled. 
believe in God, believe also in me. And I do pray, O Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. You know how afraid we can be. How crushed we can be by the darkness of these days. Lift our hearts, O God, that we might fix our eyes on Jesus and the things above. Encourage us, O God, with the knowledge that you are in control. Men scheme. They have all kinds of evil plans, but you are in control. And I pray, O Lord, that we would be strengthened in our faith to go through these days knowing that you love us and that absent from this body only means to be present with you. And we would prefer that. In Jesus' name, amen.